Morning, everybody. It's a beautiful day outside. A bit windy, but、um, it's nice to have the sun out. It makes a big difference to my spirit. Can you believe that it is October? I cannot believe how quickly this year has gone by.、Um, tonight is daylight savings, and so we're gonna be the clock will move forward, which means you'll lose an hour of sleep.、Um, but hopefully, you can sleep in.、Um, those of you who who are able to. So yes, today is the eighth fruit of the spirit, gentleness. And next week, I'll be preaching on self control. And then we're finishing the series. And you know, gentleness and self control are are、um, two of the ones that I think we struggle with the most in our family. And so Roy and I were like, "Are you going to preach that? No, you preach it. No, you preach it." <laughs> and so we we were like, "Okay, prayerfully, God help us to <laughs> to live this out in our lives."、Um, and and that's the case with every sermon we preach, right? We're we're we are all on that faith journey together.、Um, and so the sermon is for for myself、um, as well as for anyone else. Gentleness. When you when you think of that word gentleness, what comes to mind? Who comes to mind when you think of someone who is gentle? Is it someone with a soft voice and a and a tender touch? You know, we tell our children to be gentle when when they're dealing with animals or babies. But is gentleness about not causing harm? Many people associate gentleness with weakness or passivity. But what does it really mean to be gentle? And in a world where aggressors and Get their way, and where people glorify revenge, is gentleness even possible? This week, we tried to watch the U.S. presidential debate, and my seven-year-old's facial expression said it all. We we just couldn't watch anymore. And he was asking, "Why are they yelling and interrupting each other? Why, indeed?" And you know, you can tune into the Australian Parliament on any given day and hear insults being thrown back and forth. And forget looking to our leaders. We we look we look around at the world today. We look around the way that we interact with our colleagues, our family members, and I don't know about you, but it's hard to be gentle, right? It's easier to be grumpy, and it's easier to just、um, get impatient and and to feel frustrated and、um, and to critique and judge and gossip. But the Bible calls us to countercultural values and behavior. So Galatians chapter five verses nineteen onwards, the acts of the flesh are obvious: sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy. Peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The Greek word that is translated as gentleness here in Galatians chapter five, verse twenty-three, can also be translated as meekness. And that word meekness has even more negative connotations in, in our society today. We think of someone who is meek as being a pushover, a doormat, a wallflower. But what does the Bible mean when it uses this word gentle or meek? We first see this Greek word in 
the book of Matthew, when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, which is his great kind of constitution of the kingdom of heaven, laying the foundation of the principles of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And this is what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We don't really think of the meek as inheriting the earth. Most of the times, those who gain are those who use the greatest force and manipulation. Even the heroes in our culture, superheroes, the Avengers, the Rebel Alliance, they use force and manipulation, but we cheer for them just because we like them better. In this reality, might makes right, and the end justifies the means. But Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. And he says, and I want you to, to live and to win differently, not by the same methods that everyone else uses, but in a way that I'm calling you to. And when he, Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth, he's actually quoting um, a passage in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 37. Um, and the Psalm says, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Although you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So while the world says, you know, hit harder, yell louder, get even, God says, be still before the Lord and wait for him to bring about justice. And that doesn't mean we just submit blindly to abuse. Meekness is not inaction or hopeless surrender. Rather, biblical gentleness or meekness is yielding to God our anger, our frustration, our envy, our anxiety, and then letting him calm us and fill us instead with hope and trust in God so, and his methods so that we can then respond and act differently. Look at that verse. If we go back, oopsie, back, sorry. The, uh, in verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Let's see if my um, special thing is, no, it's not working. Okay, I was trying to highlight it. Uh, verse three, trust in the Lord and do good, right? And, and the question is, well, what is good? What is the good thing that we can, we can do once we have experienced that healing and, and, um, and that grace from God to be able to, be motivated not by our anger, but by his goodness. What is the good that we can then do? And he says, in Micah 6 verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so God is not saying, you know, do nothing. He's saying, do good, but come to me first. 
right? Come to me and, and, and let me heal you of your anger and your bitterness and your frustration and your envy and your anxiety and, and fuel you instead with my love and my character and my ways so that you can go out and do this good. We don't have to match insult for insult. We don't have to plot machinations and schemes. We don't have to play by their rules. God says, I want you to live by my standards and my principles. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, because that's what everyone else says to do, right? He says, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Drink. In doing this, you will heap burns, burning coals on his head. Yeah, well, can you give me some water? I'm actually really thirsty. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love that line. Do not overcome uh, by evil, right? You can't overcome evil with evil because that makes you evil as well. He says, overcome evil with good. And that's what's going to stop the cycle of violence. That's what's going to stop the cycle of evil. God is not calling us to be doormats. He calls us to overcome, right? Not, not with, thank you. I have run the children's Sabbath school program before the sermon, and we do a lot of singing, and I didn't uh, hydrate enough. Thank you. So he says, you know, I don't want you to overcome with an eye for an eye, a punch for a punch, but with a different approach. He says, I want you to overcome through your integrity, your mercy, your humility, and your kindness. That's how evil can be overcome because Jesus did that. He proved that that's what wins in the end. He illustrated the power of gentleness in his life, in his death and his resurrection. The same Greek word for, for meekness or gentleness is used in Matthew chapter 21. When Jesus is finishing his three and a half, uh, three and a half years of public ministry, and he knows it is time. And while his disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, right? And, and they literally would, would almost get in fist fights, <laughs> arguing about who was the best, who was the greatest, who's going to be the most powerful when Jesus finally ascends the throne. Jesus knows that that is not his, uh, the way to, to greatness or to power. And what he does is he asks two of his disciples to go fetch him a donkey. So we read in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. You see, when the large crowd paraded Jesus through Jerusalem with palm branches um, and, and shouted Hosanna, disciples were elated. This is it, they thought. This was the moment that they had waited for, the moment of vindication and victory, where Jesus would seize the throne uh, from Herod and become the king of Israel. 
and they would finally sit as rulers, right? Their three and a half years of commitment and, and, and devotion and sacrifice was finally going to be rewarded. So the disciples are so excited. The crowd is excited. And everyone is expecting Jesus to storm the palace, you know, use his power to stun all the soldiers, and he would take the crown. But while his disciples, you know, prepared for a military coup, Jesus was preparing for the cross. He knew that the only crown that he was going to wear was going to be a crown of thorns. He knew that through his sacrifice alone, everyone could have eternal life. And that for the meek to inherit the earth, he had to be an example. And so he submitted like a lamb to the slaughter. A few weeks ago, our guest speaker, Pastor Justin Bone, shared about how when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter, one of the disciples, you know, got out his sword and he swung and he um, cut off the ear of one of the servants. And Jesus immediately cried out, stop, put your swords away. And he healed the man's ear. And all the disciples are stunned because they're thinking, what, isn't this our time to fight back? Isn't this the moment we, we, we show everyone how incredibly powerful we are? But Jesus instead tells them, put your swords away and submits to the arrest. And they don't know what to make of this. And all the disciples run away. Jesus gets taken. He gets whipped and flogged and stripped, sat, sped on, insulted, crucified. And he, he could have saved himself. He could have stopped all that abuse, but he submitted knowing that this was the only way that God would be able to save all of humanity. And so despite being treated unfairly and cruelly, Jesus showed mercy. In Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 36, it reads, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he was God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers also came to him and mocked him. You know, it takes incredible strength, courage, and vision to be gentle. To have that security in knowing who you are. So that no matter what others say, you don't have to prove yourself and you are secure in knowing this is what I have to do. This is what God wants me to do. Jesus knew that proving himself by saving himself was not the way to save humanity. He knew who he was. He knew what he had to do. So instead of responding to their insults or accusations, he gives them forgiveness. He even extends understanding. He prays for them. But while Jesus is this gentle lamb who takes away our sins and who submitted to the death, when it came to the resurrection and when it comes to when it comes to judgment, Jesus is the lion. His grace and his mercy abound, but there comes a time when Jesus has to act on behalf of the victims to bring about justice. He delays to give everyone a chance to repent, but when it is time, he's going to return to earth, this time not on a donkey and not gently. John, one of his disciples, many years later, saw a vision of Jesus' return to earth. And this is what he says. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. 
With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you see, while before, in Matthew 21, Jesus comes riding on a donkey gently, and he doesn't, be, you know, he doesn't become the king, but instead he becomes the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who dies for humanity. But here he comes on a white horse, and here he comes as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here he does come with force, and here he comes with judgment, because the, the amount of mercy has been extended long enough. And we see a foreshadowing of this judgment in Jesus's ministry. And so, you know, in Jesus's ministry and in the Bible, there's lots of kind of mini stories that show you what's going to happen in the bigger, grander story. So shortly after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he does something else uh, shortly thereafter. You see, in the temple, there were these opportunistic merchants who were extorting the people who came to worship. And people would come from afar, especially because it was Passover time. People would travel from very far distances to come to the temple um, to, to offer their sacrifices. And because they come from such a long journey, they can't bring all the animals with them. So they would come into town, buy the animal to sacrifice. But the religious leaders, the priests and the rulers, had done an, a very bad underhanded uh, deal under the table uh, with these merchants saying, hey, let's make it so that you can't bring an animal in yourself. You have to buy the animal that's here. And let's make it so that you have to buy it, not with money, but with temple money that you have to exchange at an exorbitant rate. And so, you know, they all made this deal so that they could get rich. And so they would charge people double, triple, 10 times the amount um, that they would normally get an animal for. And people couldn't afford it. If they were poor, what could they do? They couldn't even bring their own animals from their from their farm or from their home because of these um, ridiculous rules that were made up by the rulers and the merchants. And when Jesus sees this, right, they've been doing this for years. And, you know, he's a gentle Jesus, but he's also a Jesus of action. Remember um, that we come to, to, to God and, and we get fueled by his uh, idea of what goodness is. And so Jesus comes and we see this in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus enters the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. Why, why were they indignant, right? Well, because it's their source of income. You know, it's, it's um, their worldview and their social status were being overturned because Jesus is using his authority to defend the victims. You know, they, they thought that business and religion, tradition and money were the most important things. But Jesus says, no. It's people's lives that are important. It's people's... Um, their ability and opportunity to, to come before God equally, that is what's important. 
And so Jesus was meek and gentle, but when injustice and abuse were happening, he was this, he showed his lion authority. He showed his kingship authority. And look at, at the fact that even the wrong, even though the wrongdoers are scared of him and they, they leave, look at who weren't. Look at who came to him and were drawn to him. It says the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. The children are singing his praises, right? The children weren't afraid of him. Those with, with, with disabilities weren't afraid of him. They knew that Jesus was someone who was gentle, who, who, who was loving and kind, um, and that who cared for them. And this is so significant because for centuries, the blind and the lame were excluded from the temple. So were women and children and foreigners. But all these disenfranchised individuals came to Jesus and he welcomed, affirmed, healed, invited, and served them. He prioritized all people. And in cleansing and ministering to these uh, various groups, he was fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 56 verse 7 that says, For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. He made space for those who previously weren't invited or accepted. He vindicated the rights of those who were poor and those who were on the outcasts of society. And this is just a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the second coming when he will bring about full justice and full judgment so that all the meek can inherit all the earth. But until then, we are called to follow his example. The same Greek word for meekness is used again in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, 28 where he says, Come to me, oopsie, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon uh, you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke is this um, wooden frame that joins two animals together, usually oxen for pulling heavy loads. And because the pair of animals are joined together, they have to go in the same direction. And if they want to go different directions, it's, they're going to pull against each other and they're not going to get anywhere. So usually when the farmers, you know, hitch the, the, um, the pair of animals to the yoke, they would pair together an older, more experienced animal with a younger one. And the younger one would follow the lead of the older. And Jesus uses this metaphor to talk about discipleship. He wants us to follow him. He wants us to partner with him. And he's saying, hey, trust me. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. And I'm going to go nice and gentle, he says. I'm, I'm, I'm meek. He says, I, I'm gentle and humble in heart. And so you're going to find rest. It's not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be pulling you, dragging you along. I'm going to be gentle. Just stay in step with me, right? Step by step. In Galatians 5, it said that we walk step by step in the spirit. And so Jesus here is saying, follow me, surrender to my lead, right? Trust me. And step by step, I'm going to take you and to where I would like you to be and, and have you partner with me in the work of, of sharing this good news to others. He says, in, through this way, we experience rest. I love how that invitation says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty tired, right? For, for many reasons um, and from many things. I think 
this whole lockdown, you know, definitely there's that fatigue of Zoom fatigue and home fatigue and and doing the same thing every day. There's there's a bit of that, but there's also, for me, anyways, there's a tiredness that just comes from knowing that the things that we fill our lives with and and the things that we try to pursue. I think this pandemic has really shown us that those things cannot satisfy, right? The the things that life used to be before. Um, if you think about it, that endless pursuit of happiness, what those standards of, of what happiness is changes all the time, right? You think, oh, I'll be really happy if I, if I go on this vacation. Well, what happens after you go on that vacation? What's going to bring you happiness after that? The, the, the life and the standards and the expectations and the pressure, um, of our society as it is, if we, if we resume that load, it's exhausting. It's, it's, it's so tiring to try to please others. And it, it's burdensome to carry with us bitterness, right, from whatever it is we've gone through this year. It's so burdensome to carry with us anger towards others who might have hurt us uh, this year. It's exhausting trying to live life by the rules of this world. And Jesus says, come. You're exhausted and tired and burdened today, come. And he says, I will give you rest. You know, I think one of the reasons why this, this sermon was so difficult for me is that I struggle with gentleness. And as I reflected on this, I realized that the reason why gentleness is so difficult for many of us, including myself, is that for self selfishness is really at the core of uh, what keeps us from gentleness. In other words, a selfish heart, you know, is thinking about you, what someone else has done to you and how they make you feel. Like, for example, you know, when I, when I get really angry with my kids, I would love to be able to talk to them when they do something that frustrates me. I would love to be able to be patient and gentle and, you know, talk to them calmly. But instead, I get really frustrated and I yell at them. And when I pause later and reflect on this, I realize it's because I am thinking about how they're making me feel, the extra work they've caused me, how they've disappointed my expectations, right? And, 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 and at the core of it all is that self. But when I apologize to them for getting upset, um, the wonderful thing about children is that they are quick to forgive. And then they also apologize to me for, for doing the thing that made me upset. Because gentleness can really diffuse the situation and it can bring about reconciliation. And I find that the, the solution to our selfishness, right, is to put not self at the center, but to go back and, and ask God to be at the center of our hearts, to pray and ask God to, to, to really be the one that leads the way for us to surrender to him and say, okay, God, not my expectations, but yours. Not what I want, but what you want. And every time I go back to that place, I am able to then come back and, and let go of the bitterness and the anger and the frustration and try again. And the good news for all of us is that God promises that the impossible things are possible with him. And, you know, fruit takes time. You know, if you think about trees and how long it takes for fruit to come, it takes time. And the good news is that through the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is possible for all of us. Even if it takes a lifetime, the fruit of gentleness is possible. And so some things you can do practically is, yeah, 
to to pause, reflect. Was I gentle in the situations that I faced today? And if not, why? And if you need to apologize, to do that quickly rather than letting it letting it you know sit there and delaying. Gentleness comes from a heart where God is at the center, and so regularly take time to to pray and ask God to um, help you surrender. And, you know, do what you need to do to remind yourself that God is the one that we need to, um, to live for, that he's the one that is going to give us rest for our souls. And once we understand that we have an incredible intrinsic value in God, and that cannot be taken away by anyone else's behavior, when we have that strong sense of security and identity in God, then we can afford to give people the benefit of the doubt. We can afford to let them win. We can afford to forgive them. We can afford to love and serve them as Jesus did. And when others are being mistreated, we can stand up for them as Jesus did as well. I pray that as you spend time with God and as you pray to him and reflect um, on what's in your heart, that God will enable you to be gentle and meek like Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Help us to let go of our desire for control and to instead learn to trust in you and to put you at the center of our lives and our hearts. Heal and forgive us for the many times where we have let self be at the center of our hearts and where we have let anger or or bitterness or pride um, take over our hearts. And Father, help us, heal us, forgive us, so that in experiencing your grace, we'll be able to extend it to others. And may our gentleness then change our relationships and our communities. And may may our gentleness change the world so that, Father God, when you come again, um, the meek can inherit the earth. We pray in your son's name. Amen.